This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The State Health Department is preparing to release its recommendations for the upcoming school year. It shared the plan with close to 40 members of its school advisory uh, council yesterday afternoon. Philip Bossert, who represents HAIS, the Hawaii Association of Independent Schools, sits on that advisory board. He talked with us this morning about the new guidance, which comes as we are seeing the uptick of cases of the more contagious Delta variant in those who are unvaccinated. So it looks like they've sort of divided their recommendations into sort of essential recommendations and then also good ideas. And under essential The number one is encourage everyone to get vaccinated. And number two is masking for all indoor events, all indoor classes and the like, but not necessarily for outdoor activities. So they're saying that if you're outside, you don't necessarily need masks. And then the social distancing, they've said, you know, if you've got the space, go for six feet. But if you don't, three feet is fine in classrooms and ideally having your students all face the same direction. And they do say that while the students can be three feet apart, that the distance between adults and students should ideally be six feet. And then they drop down to a second group of recommendations, which include the increased ventilation of spaces and the use of what they call those ohana bubbles. So if you can keep classes together, not only in the classroom, but when they go out for recess, try to keep them together too, so that if someone does test positive, you know who they've been in contact with. And then in cafeterias, if when the students are eating, they don't have to wear a mask, obviously, but you should try to keep them six feet apart while they're eating because they won't have any mask on. Before they were saying, have the meals in the classroom in the Ohana bubble, but now they're saying it's okay back in the area. So those are pretty much the groups of, you know, you've got this essential group, really pay attention to vaccination and masking and three feet apart. And then then sort of the second group of improved ventilation. And I think there were actually seven items in the second one. I can't remember all of them. One of the items that was in the old recommendations was that a student shouldn't be allowed to come back to class after they had been in the vicinity of someone, either they had been infected, they'd been in the vicinity of someone who was infected, that there should always be a doctor's note for them to get back into the class and after their quarantine. So now they're saying, you know, if you've quarantined for 10 days and don't have any symptoms, you don't have to go also get a doctor's note. The doctors just didn't want to be overwhelmed with, you know, hundreds of kids showing up every morning and looking for a note. So. You represent a number of independent schools. You recently surveyed some of uh, your members about their plans and, and if they had made decisions about whether they were going to require masks or require vaccines. And we understand that there are a couple of schools that have indicated that, uh, you know, they were leaning toward mandatory vaccines. Talk about the survey results. There's about 112 private schools, of which about 100 are members of HAIS. We got a response rate of about 59, which is unusual even for us. We ask questions like, are you going to require vaccinations for in-person classes? Or are you going to require masking? In terms of vaccination, almost none of the schools said they were going to require it, but they would all encourage it for students 12 and older and faculty and staff. So they're not requiring, but encouraging that. In terms of masking, they pretty much were in favor, I would say 75% were going to require masks at all grade levels, for sure indoors, and then depending on the school, it was less so for outdoors. So that when the kids are out at recess or in extracurricular activities, there would be little more allowance for non-masking. And then we asked the question, are you going to do COVID testing? Many of them did that in the past year, and 85% said no, no more COVID testing of students. Really? Yeah, on a daily basis type thing or a weekly basis. So if you have a problem or something or there's a, you're infected, or then, of course, you would be tested before you come back and the like. But the sort of daily or weekly testing they were not basically going to do that. And there was, even in the case of athletes and those kids in extracurricular activities, 
most of them said they wouldn't be doing the testing. Almost every school had the temperature taking and drop off and stuff like that, or or the daily filling out a daily, daily COVID form. But this year, only 25% said that they were going to continue with the daily form and and temperature testing. 30% said no, and 30% said they were undecided. Our understanding was that Iolani School was one of the two schools here on Oahu that was intending mandatory vaccines for those 12 and above. Yes. So the independent schools are each independent businesses, so they each have to make their own decision. We did encourage every school to come up with a COVID plan, which, as far as we know, they did. Most of the schools also wait or look to the Hawaii Department of Health for their guidance. And the so whereas the Department of Health in their school guidelines, those are recommendations. But you also have the Hawaii Department of Human Services, which has responsibility for licensing preschools and before and after school cares. So theirs are not recommendations. Those are mandates, requirements. So you have a set of guidelines coming out of the Department of Health for schools and then usually a more restrictive set of guidelines or mandates coming out of human services for preschools and before and after. So schools have to sort of navigate between those two in making up their own policies. The main takeaway, though, is that the guidance that they're going to be issuing uh, officially tomorrow is that mask wearing indoors still highly recommended? Yep, that's still highly recommended for all grades. Another question that sort of came up is, both in the discussions yesterday evening and in our survey, was if a student is vaccinated, are they going to be able to go mask-free? And in most cases, both the schools and the recommendations are, that's not really a good idea because it creates sort of a two groups of students and then you've got a one, how do you police it? And does one group have to wear white and the other group wears black or something? So it's hard to police and it's also can create dissension among the students and the parents and stuff. So it's just not worth it. So you won't have, most schools are going to say, look, either everybody wears a mask or some of our schools are saying, some of the smaller ones that have classes with only 10 or 12 students are saying, you know, we're not going to have masks inside or outside. We have at least three schools in our group that have already said that they're, they're not going to require masks at all on campus. Can you share what those schools are? I would rather not. Okay. <laughs> all right. Okay. <laughs> I'll have to find out for myself, okay? Um, okay. Trying to think. Okay, but, but that's the big takeaway is that they're recommending masks. Uh, vaccinated or not, some schools may opt to disregard that and go with no masks if they feel that they're confident enough, you know, with the, their vaccination rates or their physical distancing. And then some schools may just still go farther and require vaccines. Yes. So it's still difficult for a school to require a vaccine because the vaccines are still under emergency uh, authorization. And so Technically, I mean, you can say, you know, if you want to come to school, then you got to be vaccinated. But on the other hand, if that's the rule, then they usually have to provide some sort of a remote learning for kids who are not vaccinated. So that's why I think it'll be schools requiring vaccination will probably be very few in number right at this point. And then do you plan to survey your members once this guidance goes out tomorrow? Uh, yeah, I think... We'll, we'll give it a week to settle and then uh, do another survey. And then after the last survey, we, we held one of our Zoom roundtables for heads of school. We had about 60 of them that came on and discussed what was what they were going to do and discussed the survey and the like. And so we'll do that again, too, because I think the heads look for what other people are doing. So that because you have some parents who have kids in two different or three, even three different schools. And so then they come up and say, hey, wait a minute, that school over there is not doing anything. How come you're doing this? And so I think they do try to keep in tune with, in general, what people are doing. Well, I think the main thing, though, is just what's happening with this uh, Delta variant, you know, yep. and our case count is still, what, in triple digits now. And so that just puts a whole monkey wrench of, you know, uncertainty. And if people want to be cautious, 
you know, I guess the the schools that opt to to try and do uh, the mandatory vaccines will go that route. And the folks that feel, you know, okay with the their student body and, and the precautions that they're taking will, you know, not require masks. So, uh, yeah, it'd be very interesting to see uh, what happens then in the next couple of weeks before school starts. And the the, right. the, the main date for the uh, private schools generally uh, for getting back in the classroom? I would say 50% of our schools are back in session the last two weeks of August. That was Phil Bossert, who's with the Hawaii Association of Independent Schools. He sits on the DOH School Advisory Council. He was sharing the guidance that he expects the uh, state to issue officially by tomorrow. Bossert also sits on a separate advisory board that is planning for guidelines for vaccines for students ages 5 to 12. Uh, Those are expected out later this fall. We continue with our education thread on our reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Suvon Lee has a story online today about what the public schools are offering with remote learning programs. The new school year is just about to begin. Good morning, Suvon. That's right. Thank you. Good morning, Catherine. Yeah, August 3rd, just around the corner. That's right. Just a little under two weeks. Um, All schools are directed to reopen for full in-person instruction. And these are very interesting times right now, a little um, anxiety inducing given the rising case counts in Hawaii. So um, anything can happen in two weeks. But yes, that is the current mandate opening for full in-person instruction. And, you know, we saw earlier where school superintendent Christina Kishimoto, you know, had said that it was going to be Yeah, all back in the classroom and not so much with remote learning, but the board had some other ideas about that. Yes, that's right. Um, And and let's keep in mind when she issued her her directive, Kishimoto, this was back in May. This was before the last school year ended. So she was giving schools plenty of time to prepare for that return to the classroom. Also, this was back in May when vaccinations were still at a steady pace. Um, More and more people were getting vaccinated. Um, At this point, it's kind of plateaued. But um, people were feeling confident that schools or kids could safely return to classrooms. Now, uh, several months later, um, of course, we have kind of shifting conditions in our state now. Um, you know, tourism levels are higher and um, sort of the, the health circumstances are, are sort of changing with this growing divide between the vaccinated and unvaccinated. And of course, we know kids under 12 are not eligible yet to receive the shots. So we're in this period of flux. But yes, uh, Kishimoto did say that all schools would come back in person back in May. And here we are are now, um, the Board of Education has directed the DOE to actually offer um, a statewide or complex-wide distance learning plan because many families have been expressing the desire to keep going with that option because either they're not comfortable bringing their kids back to the classroom or there's extenuating circumstances in which they just don't feel safe with that just yet. And, you know, when we talked to Kishimoto uh, on our show, she had uh, mentioned that I think the the number of parents who were interested in remote learning was small, somewhere like one to two percent. Uh, and the teachers union had concerns because they didn't want their members overburdened with teaching in class, you know, instruction, and then also having to worry about kids that were also online. Absolutely. The teachers union has been very adamant about um, not having its, uh, not having teachers here simultaneously teach students in the classroom while monitoring a computer where other students are uh, tuning in remotely. Uh, that proved to be very burdensome last school year, um, which was sort of the mode of teaching at the time. And the BOE basically said at their last meeting, that's not going to happen. So any distance learning plan that does happen per school 
or a complex area needs to be done independent of that sort of hybrid style of teaching. So this list that came out yesterday, late yesterday from the department, um, indicates how schools are actually going to be administering distance learning plans. And while it's still a little unclear how exactly that's going to happen, it looks like for the vast majority of cases, these schools are going to be relying on an online curriculum that the DOE purchased called K-12 Stride. But what is going to happen is that students who want to learn from home still will have to learn independently with a parent facilitator, with the teacher only doing the grading. So I know a lot of advocates and the union has been really pushing for a teacher-led online curriculum where teachers are actually teaching those students, but it looks like only a few K, uh, only a few schools are actually going to be able to offer that because it does take resources and staff to do that. Yeah, so we'll see uh, how well that uh, uh, K-12 Stride uh, program you know, actually works out. Uh-huh. I mean, uh, hopefully it, it was vetted because <laughs> uh, uh, they had problems with the cellist, uh before. So yeah, we'll, we'll see. I mean, it is going to be a stressful time for parents as, as they get ready to get the kids back in the classroom. Right. We'll, we'll have to see what does happen indeed. Um, um, you know, like I said, two weeks until August 3rd, the start of the school year. Um, the DOE also has a report due by next week on what that statewide online distance learning option will look like for those complex areas that can't afford to offer a school-based plan or because the demand is low. So how that's going to work is also yet to be determined. But the details should be coming out next week from the DOE. All right. Well, thanks so much, Suvon. Thank you for having me on. That was Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Suvon Lee with today's reality chat. To read her full story, visit civilbeat.org. You are tuned to The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. Kai Kahele is only the second Native Hawaiian to be elected to Congress since statehood. The late Danakaka was the first. However, several other Native Hawaiians served in Congress, representing the territory of Hawaii. The first was Robert Wilcox, the revolutionary who led uprisings against both the kingdom and later the Republic of Hawaii. The most influential was Jonah Kuhio Kalaniane who moved meaningful legislation at the nation's capital and created what is today the State Department of Hawaiian Homelands. William Paul Jarrett and Samuel Wilder King also represented Hawaii on the Hill. However, there's one more native Hawaiian congressman we didn't mention. He was born in San Francisco, educated in Switzerland, and fought in World War II. Can you tell us the name of this native Hawaiian rep? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community-based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center, NareetHawaii.com. Today, we've got another citizen science dispatch for you, this time from Honolulu. 
Everyone walking around the city and thought, man, that's one good-looking white pigeon. Well, chances are it's actually a Manuoku, an endemic white tern that makes its home in our city. Honolulu is the only place in the main Hawaiian islands where these birds nest. They seem to have taken a particular liking to our trees. And a citizen science organization, Hui Manuoku, is responsible for documenting all those nesting sites. You may have been wondering about all those blue ribbons around trees in town. The conversation Savannah Harriman Pote tagged along with one of their volunteers to see how it's done. When Matt Saunter offered to take me on a tour of Manuoku nesting sites... I was picturing something a little more, I don't know, scenic. This is our tree <laughs> in the middle of Don Quixote parking lot, a very, very busy place. Saunter is a volunteer with Hui Manuoku, a citizen science organization that surveys and documents Manuoku nesting sites throughout urban Honolulu. He's brought me to one such nest in a shower tree that's, yes, smack dab in the middle of the Don Quixote shopping mart parking lot. So, there's our nest. There's our bird. <laughs> Maybe like 15 feet above the ground. Wow. Um, we might be able to get a better vantage on this side to see what um, stage it's at. Okay. A manuoku, or white tern, perches just above our heads. It's a small, pure white seabird, no bigger than an office stapler. Easy to miss, unless you're looking for it. That's where the blue ribbon around the tree's trunk comes in. We flag all of our trees with this ribbon, and that's to kind of mostly indicate to people managing the trees, like tree trimmers, that there is an active white tern nest in this tree. And ideally, you wouldn't trim the tree while, while that nest is active. So the hope is if we visit these sites regularly enough, we'll remove the flagging once the, the nest is no longer present, and then they can come and do their job and trim the trees up. The ribbon also has Hui Manuoku's hotline on it, which people can call if they notice a chick has fallen from the tree. And all the trees have an alphanumeric code. Volunteers have access to an app on their phones that provides them with a map of all the tad trees in their area. Also in this link, Sometimes there's photos of the nest site, which is also really helpful because some of these trees can be really big and some of them could have multiple nests in it. So it's, it's pretty easy to find a nest site if there's an adult on it. But if it's just the chick, they're very cryptic in their coloration and they don't move around a lot. So it's gonna be pretty hard to locate without having more information as to you know, what the nest location within the tree is. The last data entry for our tree was on June 24th, when a volunteer saw an adult sitting on an egg. The incubation period for white terns is about 35 days, so we're on the lookout for either an egg or a small chick. Hui Manuoku's app has a section for us to log our observations. There's a lot of options in the observation field. We, we can say adult is in nesting position, and then there's all these other options depending on how much time you have. But I think the fact that we weren't able to confirm whether it was an egg or chick, at least saying that the adult was in the nesting position will indicate that, you know, this is an active nest. Some of those options are chick flying, <laughs> chick hopping and flapping, mm -hmm. adult with distended abdomen. Does that indicate a adult that's going to lay an egg? It I'm actually not really sure. It could be maybe it's going to lay an egg or it could be that it just fed. Hmm. Um, I've honestly never used that one. Chick fallen from tree, still alive. Mm -hmm. And here's egg bump visible on adults. So when they're sitting on the egg, you can still see um, that there's something under there. So if it has an egg bump visible, then it probably means there's an egg or a small chick under there. Hmm. So we could do that. And then all you do is click Submit. And that's how volunteers survey a nesting site. Nest is a little generous, by the way. White terns don't build nests. They lay eggs directly on the branches of trees. And if an egg or a chick does fall from the tree, it has to be put back exactly in the same spot, 
or the parents might not recognize it. There are volunteers with Huimanu Oku who focus specifically on these rescue missions. Again, their hotline is listed on the blue ribbon that tags a nesting site. What a beautiful bird. Yeah, I thought this would be a good uh, demonstration <laughs> on how resilient they are and they can actually nest in the middle of a parking lot in this shower tree. Rich Downs started Huimono Oku a little over five years ago after he saw the ghostly white seabirds flying around Honolulu. As common as they are, not an awful lot is known about them. This just seemed a really a great opportunity. Since then, the data that Downs and fellow citizen scientists have collected has given us a wealth of insight into our friendly neighborhood white terns. A scientific finding that we made based on our observations was that they do breed year-round on Oahu and that they have a higher than, than usual breeding success rate. Based on the data we've gathered, their success rate is about 69%. So the good news is that white terns are thriving, which is great. But it also means that Huimanu Oku needs more manpower than ever to keep up with all the nesting sites. Downs estimates that volunteers tagged 325 nesting sites this year. And remember, each of those sites needs to be checked at least once a month. Saunter says it's a lot to keep up with. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the hardships is Huimanu Oku really relies on volunteers and citizen scientists which, you know, come and go. It's not a devoted effort. So really it's, it's, it's gonna be a challenge to maintain the data as the population, the white term population in Honolulu increases. Well, this one's right across the street from where I work, so I can come, <laughs> can come visit on my lunch break. Yeah, you can, you can let me know maybe. That was the conversation. Savannah Harriman Pote talking to Matt Saunter, a volunteer with Hui Manoku, the or and the organization's founder, Rich Downs. Savannah checked on the nest this morning. I saw her. No chicket. <laughs> you can learn to survey white terns for yourself with Hui Manoku. We'll have links on our website later today. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering a distance executive MBA in travel industry management. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello. I'm Rabbi Paul Citron, author of I Am My Prayer. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about enlivening prayer that wakes us up and opens our consciousness. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, with ways for the community to help conserve water during the hot summer months when rainfall is low but demand is high. Seven ways to conserve water at boardofwatersupply.com. Surfing is set to make its Olympic debut in Japan later this month. Team USA is taking four surfers to the Games in Chiba. Two were born and raised in Hawaii, John John Florence and Carissa Moore. It's a sport with deep roots in Hawaii. Former state senator and surfing world champion Fred Hemmings co-founded the original professional surfing tour in 1976, known today as the World Surf League. The conversation summer intern Matt Fairfax sat down with Hemmings to discuss the evolution of the sport and his expectations for the Olympics. My earliest memories are rolling around on the shore break and the white sands of Waikiki Beach, and then, of course, uh, got my first surfboard when I was eight, and eventually learned how to surf at uh, canoe surf in Waikiki. And it, 
went on from there and ended up in Macaw and the North Shore. And surfing's been a wonderful gift to me. And I like to say surfing's always a gift to the world, but it's taken me all over the world. I've surfed in locations in pretty some pretty exotic places. We saw that the surfing community lost a big wave legend in Greg Knoll. I believe you were there in December of 1969 in Makaha where Greg Knoll rode that famous monster wave. Apparently, you said that was one of the biggest waves you've ever seen. I was wondering if you remember at all what that day was like, what that moment was like, or just what those Makaha early days uh, in surfing were like. I like to say that Makaha is the best kept secret in surfing. It's a the most versatile surf site in the world. That day was, uh, they call it the swell of the century. It was 1969. It was actually a week of very large surf. And most of the days, the North Shore was closed out. as breaking out what they call the second reef. It was breaking farther, you know, twice as far out as the normal lineup. And you just, you know, there's no, you know, it was like victory at sea. There was nothing you could do to ride the waves in the North Shore. So we all migrated over to Macaw, which was fine by me. I loved Macaw. And there were a couple of days where it was, 20, 25 feet in glassy, and you could actually ride the waves. It was just magical. And this one particular day that uh, Greg went out, it was, I would say it was 30 plus. And uh, many surfers don't understand nowadays some of the hydrodynamics of riding big waves. But when you try to catch a really big wave, the water's moving up the face of the wave for a lot of reasons I won't go into now, faster than you can paddle. So you get sucked up to the top of the wave, and then finally gravity takes over. And you fall off the cliff at the top of the wave, and most of the time leads to wipeout, which is exactly what Greg did on that 35-foot wave he took off on. I paddled over a closeout set. I've got a picture of it. The wave had to be 40 feet, and I paddled over it. And I said to myself, well, this ain't worth dying for. And so I I paddled into the channel and uh, caught some white water on the inside and came in. I didn't actually take off on a wave, but Greg did. And he, he paid the price for it. He got a, uh, for the world's biggest wipeout, too. You put your name into the history books when you became a surfing world champion in 1968. I believe you won in Puerto Rico. How proud were you to be Hawaii's first ever surfing world champ? And what do you recall from that special moment? It was a special moment. It was quite controversial in, in a lot of ways. I went representing Hawaii as part of a Hawaiian team, and um, there was a lot of provincial pride in, in all the surfing. You know, Australia was supposed to be the top gun surfers, and then, of course, there's Southern California surfers. Uh, so we all had a lot of competition going besides between ourselves, between our locations, and, and Hawaii ha- hadn't really won it yet. And um, so I paddled out in the finals, and it was a six-man finals. And I like to think that what won it for me besides my surfing ability was my strategy. Uh, most of the other surfers were catching every wave they could ride, and I looked at the rules, and they quite clearly, they judged the best three waves and compare it against everybody else's best three. So you can catch 10 waves, but they're only going to count your highest three scoring rides and then compare it against everybody else. So it didn't take a mathematician to figure out uh, three eights will beat 10 sevens. And I caught four waves, and one of them uh, was one particular wave that, that really set me apart. And uh, my three waves added up to be uh, more than the other ones. Strategically, I um, used a strategy that, that basically I learned from Duke Kanemoku in a, and the older surfers in a, um, you know, I was never tutored by Duke, but I learned by watching what they would do. And there's a philosophical question without a correct answer to ask. And is it better or more gratifying to catch a lot of good waves? Or is it better to wait and catch the best wave of the day? And uh, as we know from Duke's famous ride in 1917 to, from Castles to Waikiki Beach, a lot of surfers, uh, I like to think the better surfers, sit on the outside and they wait for the big wave because that's the one they're going to remember. And that's what I did. Uh, like I said, it, they took the top three waves, and I only caught four. And four waves in an hour is not very many. And you retired from surfing contests not long after your world title. After that, you then turned to promoting surfing and commentating surfing events. Why did you ultimately make the decision to 
retire from surfing and transition to marketing and promoting surfing into a serious sport? Surfing in the late 60s, like the country, went through some great trauma between the old guard establishment and the new age, uh, what I called the sex, drug, and rock and roll. You know, and guys were taking LSD and smoking pot and stuff like that. And I, I'm an outspoken critic of all that. I saw a lot of my friends basically do great harm to themselves and their psyche. And I, I, I wanted to elevate the sport. Another thing that was happening at the time was that we kind of hit the zenith of amateur surfing. And a lot of the better surfers were, for lack of a better word, semi-pro. They were making money off the sport through endorsements things, but there were no professional meets. And I think the lot, next logical step in a sport is, you know, going professional. And so I decided to start pro surfing events, which I did. And I'm very proud to say uh, 51 years later, the Pipeline Masters is still heralded as one of the great contests of the surfing world. And we started the Triple Crown in the in 1976, we started uh, the World Surfing Circuit, the first World Surfing Circuit under uh, the, the label International Professional Surfing, which has been replaced by the World Surfing League now. So it's been a long road, and surfing n has not stopped to amaze me. It just continues to grow. As we are going to see soon, surfing will be making its Olympic debut this summer in Japan. What was your initial reaction when you found out that surfing would be an Olympic sport? And do you have any concerns for surfing this summer? Yes, I do. I, I, first of all, I want to congratulate all those who finally got it recognized as a sport to be included in the Olympics. But I, I have a great, great concern. And I, I, I probably know this better than anyone in the world, having uh, spent a number of years, you know, two decades running professional surfing events. Uh, you can't go down on the beach on any given day and expect there to be good waves. Uh, that's why we had windows. You know, we'd hold the Masters, and it only took two days to run a contest, but we'd have a 10-day window. It would be on the day to serve. We'd watch the charts, and we'd try to guess what the best day would be. They're running a high risk. It, uh, the, the time period they set aside, the two or three days for the Olympic surfing competition, there won't be any waves. At Shiba, it's being held on a beach in Japan. I've been to that beach. And it's a nice little wave when it's breaking, but there's oftentimes it doesn't break at all, and there's just no waves. And I just, for the life of me, cannot understand why they didn't hold the event and build a, a Kelly Slater surf machine. Guaranteed, where every 42 seconds there's a wave. It's a guaranteed wave. It's got a good tube. It's got a good, a good wall to it. Uh, it encumbers or includes all the basic maneuvers of surfing, and they'd have a guaranteed surfing, guaranteed uh, waves. Uh, the other thing is, too, after you build it, you know, for the years after that, you, you can rent it out and do what Kelly does. You can you have it pay for itself. In other words, it's not like you lose money by building a thing. Uh, and, heck, they build stadiums for other events. Why couldn't they build a wave machine and have guaranteed surf? So I think strategically, I hope I'm wrong. I hope they have great surf, but strategically they're taking quite a risk. Fred, uh, that's all from me. Is there anything else you'd like to comment on? Any other thing you'd like to address? Anything come to mind? Well, I, I'd like to tell the people of Hawaii to be aware of uh, what our natural assets are, and surfing is one of them, and be proud of surfing and be proud of our surfers and help support it and protect it. That was former state senator and surfing world champion Fred Hemmings talking about surfing's journey to the Olympic Games, which kicks off this weekend. 20 men and 20 women are scheduled to compete. In our backyard quiz today, we were looking at Native Hawaiians in Congress. Seven have been on the list, but the one we were looking for was born in San Francisco, spent some school years in Switzerland, and shared his last name with the most populous city in Texas. This Kanaka earned his degree at the United States Naval Academy in Annapolis and was commissioned as a naval officer in 1897. He retired from active duty in 1926 with the rank of commander, but after the attack on Pearl Harbor, he was recalled to active duty and served until March 1st, 1945. 
But between his stints in the Navy, he served the public as the representative to Congress under the Hawaii Republican Party. If the suspense is killing you, the answer to today's backyard quiz is Victor S.K. Houston, who represented the territory from 1927 to 1933. When he lost his bid for re-election, he retired from politics. And we stumped you on that one. No winners. That's the answer to today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, write to talk back, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to Homa Summer Nights with live music, bites, beverages, and art-making workshops on Friday and Saturday evenings until 9. HonoluluMuseum.org He's been called a barnstorming piano phenomenon, and he's performing in HPR's Atherton Studio. Coming Saturday, July 31st, it's a live stream performance with pianist Henry Herbert playing Boogie Woogie, Blues, and much more, all on HPR's Bosendorfer Grand Piano. It's a virtual concert, so you can join us from anywhere. Sign up at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Kimo's and Leilani's on the Beach on Maui. This week, a $1,000 check, a certificate, and a medal arrived in the mailbox of the Tinka family who live here on Oahu. It was addressed to the Laie Elementary School 6th grader, Kehlani Tinkum, for winning the top prize in the National History Day competition. She was the first student in her age group from Hawaii to win first place, competing against 100 students from the U.S., China, Korea, Malaysia, and Singapore. The contest is one that Hawaii students do well in. Last year, we featured a high school winner from Iolani School for her project on female astronauts. But today, we turn our attention to Kehlani's Bond Dance Project. This does happen to be Bond Dance season, though some communities have turned to virtual events to keep everyone safe. We get to know Kehlani Tinkham, uh, whose entry took her on a journey of discovery of her Japanese roots through song, dance, and drums. Her project was entitled The R- Rhythm of Resilience, Communication Through the Bond Dance. Take a listen to part of her presentation. Long ago, when the Japanese creation myth, the storm god destroyed the land! His destruction frightened Amaterasu, the sun goddess, so much that she fled to a cave and swore to never come out. The world descended into darkness, crops failed, humans starved and perished. When all hope seemed lost, an old goddess stopped and sang on a sake barrel. Ayo, yo, yo, yisato! Her pounding feet made a sound so lively that the other gods couldn't help but dance and sing along. Amaterasu was so surprised by their celebration, she emerged from the cave to share her light. This is the history of taiko drumming, the essential rhythm of the bond dance. We sat down with Keilani Kajiyama Tinkum in our studios early this month, and we wanted to share her story. So every year for National History Day, they have a theme, and the theme this year was communications in history. So every project had to have something connected to that. And I wanted to do something that focused on my cultural heritage, because that was the whole reason why I wanted to do History Day. So I thought of the Bon Dance, which is the Japanese summer festival tradition, and I wanted to, and I was so excited to do it, because I've actually never been to one, and I was so happy to learn about my ancestral heritage. I just went to one recently, and it was just beautiful. It was just there off the Pali Highway, and uh, I I just found it to be such an eye opener. You know, even though I'd always seen pictures of it, I'd never really been down there uh, to experience it. So, so how did you, you know, how did this become a a, a roadmap for you? Well, 
my papa, his family, they lived in Japan and they were really good at the bone dance. So every year they had a competition and they always won it. And my papa, he knows some of the bone dances. So in this、um, performance, he taught me some of the bone dances and I performed them in the bone dance. So I was able to connect my family in it and I'm so thankful for them. <laughs> and so, gosh, I mean, you, you learned about the, the different,、uh, you know, the songs and music.、Uh, you know, what was that like? Well, I thought it was so cool because everyone knows about the hula and all the other traditional cultural dances. And I wanted to showcase my cultural heritage. And it was so cool because every motion in the bone dance means something. So I was able to understand it for the very first time. And there are bone dances from different parts of Japan and here in Hawaii, too. Yeah,、um, in Japan, every region has their own bone dance, and they do that dance over and over. But since people immigrated to Hawaii and they came from all over Japan, Hawaii got this blended of cultures so they could do all the bone dances. And so,、uh, what did you learn about your family through this experience? Well, I learned that my family was very resilient because in my project I talked about the immigration and internment camps. And I realized my family was actually in those and they had to suffer those. I actually had an ancestor named Yukiko Miyake and she was in the internment camps. And、uh, her family had a business and they lost all of it. They lost their business and their money and their possessions. And they even lost their trust of the country that they had. And, but after that, her daughter had died from cancer, and then her husband died soon after that. And she had declining eyesight, so she grew blind. And, but I really felt inspired, and I learned about my ancestor that she,、um, she still had a very positive outlook on life, and she was still happy and smiling and positive. In fact, she even said, and we found this interview of her saying this, and she said that life is still beautiful. And if you're positive, life can be beautiful. And so, I guess when you think about that, and you know, maybe the difficult times that they had in an internment camp, you know, I mean, I'm sure you've read those stories about how rough it was. Yeah, it was really rough in the internment camps. And, but the good thing about it was actually that in the internment camps, they could celebrate their cultures. Because in the outside of the internment camps, the Japanese culture and the Japanese Americans were forced to hide their culture and become Americans. They had to do that, otherwise, they would be viewed as un American and kind of declared as treason. But in the internment camps, they were able to celebrate their culture. And in fact, the camp authorities actually continued it and they encouraged that they do that. And so you learned these dances, and some of those dances were from a certain, certain prefecture in Japan, right? Yeah. The person I was performing and showing in my presentation, Kei Fukumoto, I actually got to interview her, and she taught me some of the taiko drum movements of Fukushima Ondo, which was the bone dance I talked about. Share some of the, the information that you gleaned from that. Well, I learned that you have to hit the drum in a certain way, otherwise, it breaks it entirely. And I thought that was kind of crazy because I was so scared of hitting it wrong to break it. And、uh, I learned that I learned a lot about the bone dance. And, and I actually found out that she was the first taiko drummer ever, first female taiko drummer ever in the history. So it was really inspiring to learn from her. Wow. So th that's. That's a lot to unpack. I mean, when you think of, you know, you just started、uh, on this journey、uh, and you used the bond dance to kind of, kind of channel you through the history. Yeah, my project began as just the bond dance. But as I researched and I looked further in, I realized that it was not just about the bond dance, but it was about the trials that, that they faced and how they could overcome it. And how the bone dance actually inspired them and communicated resilience to them and helped them go on. And so, gosh, the, you know, this is bone dance season now, and,、uh, but I don't know, you know that, that there are many of those festivals going on. I mean, hopefully we'll see、uh, before Labor Day. But、um, after doing this project, I don't know, do you look at bone dances differently now? I totally do.、Um, so when I look at bone dances now, I see the, not just the outer layer of the community aspect of everyone being together, but I can see the inner aspect of how it connects people and what this bone dances go through, the history of it. And I could really dig deeper. And I can, whenever I see it, I can see the history and I can see the love of people doing it. And so this competition、uh, that you took top honors for, I mean, 
Uh, what was that like, you know, when you saw what you were up against, you know, because there are lots of uh, really clever projects out there. As I looked at all the projects, I was really, uh, I was, I looked at them and they were really good. So I had no idea how my project would fare because the history day sometimes it's just the luck of the draw because there's different judges and different judges prefer different things. But I was so lucky. <laughs> I, when I, when they announced my name, I was just shocked. <laughs> I wasn't sure that I was going to do it, but I was like, okay, I did it. Yay. <laughs> I saw it and like, oh, no, this can't be right. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, a, that's I mean, wow, what a, what, a, what a big charge. And so, gosh, I don't know. Um, what are your aspirations? What, what are your, you know, what do you want to do with history? Any idea what you want to be when you get older? Um, well, I'm still... I have no idea what I'm going to do when I'm older because I have a lot of interests. But for now, I'm going to stick with still doing History Day and still focusing on my cultural and sharing my Japanese heritage. Okay. Um, anything else you want to add just about this whole experience, what it was like? Because I understand your mother was involved in some history projects. Yeah. I want to give a big shout out to everyone who helped me. My teacher, Colleen Spring, and my other teacher, David Ishii, um, went one really loving person named Kei Fukumoto, um, my, another teacher named um, Dory Longi, and I want to give another big shout out to um, one person I interviewed named Ai Iwane. She was really helpful and actually connected me to Kei Fukumoto. And I'm just so thankful for my family because without them, I don't think I could have done anything, honestly. Well, I'm sure they're very proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you so much. We really appreciate you coming down here and sharing your story. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> we have been talking with Kailani Kajiyama Tinkham, who won first place in an International History Day competition as a sixth grader at La EA Elementary School. are all pal for today. Up tomorrow, we wind up our look at citizen science opportunities across the state. We talk about a new initiative to measure water quality on the Big Island. Give us some feedback. Got questions uh, or, or about anything you may have heard on the air? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect with Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation 